0: Our text this morning is the New Testament lesson from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We'll look at it under three headings. The first one is the commission introduced. By the commission here, we mean John's commission. Um, And that's in verses 9 through 11. And then the glorified Christ, verses 12 through 16, the glorified Christ. And then finally, the commission introduced. Uh, reintroduced or reissued and that's in verses 17 through 20 so um, first we start with this commission Uh, John begins here with a statement of solidarity with the churches he writes as their brother and also the text says as their partner or their companion he doesn't write as an apostle And this partnership he has with them is really threefold. He says, I'm a partner with you in the suffering or the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And so, the Christian life paradoxically has two sides to it. The first is tribulation. Two basic sides. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The New Testament, as was Jesus, is emphatic about this. We're going to suffer in the world. Life is difficult. Uh, contrary to a, a popular uh, TV preacher, a good subtitle for John's book would be, Your Best Life is Definitely Not Now. <laughs> Don't be surprised, John says. Tribulation is basic to Christian existence. But the second side of our experience is the kingdom. We, we experience the kingdom of God. We taste the joy of it. The reality of it. Jesus is now, John's already told us this last week, He is now the ruler of the kings on earth. And He has now made you and I kings with Him. And so the Christian life is both suffering, and victory. And if you get it wrong, right? if it's all suffering, then there's too much grimness. And if it's all victory, there's too much chest-thumping triumphalism. It has a mixed, like life itself, it has a mixed and ambiguous character, the Christian life. And it's this reality that produces and calls for the third thing that John mentions here, Patient endurance. This is one of those places where we can say, this is Revelation in a nutshell. Here John takes the roiling sea of Revelation, he puts it in a glass for you. He puts it in a glass. We are suffering, and we shall suffer. And by This suffering we do reign, and through this suffering we shall reign. Therefore, the whole book is a call to patient endurance. All three of these things, John says, are our lot together with Him. He doesn't stand outside this. But notice we partake of them in Jesus, the text says. I'm your brother and your companion in these things in Jesus Christ. So, what we're doing in life is we are partaking of His sufferings. He's with us in our sufferings. He suffered in front of us. And when we suffer, somehow mysteriously, our sufferings participate in His. And we partake of His endurance, of His steadfastness, and thus we partake of His kingly reign. The little in Jesus right there in this verse is the key. Everything is in Him. A large part of what John is trying to do in the whole book is re-center us on the triune God, the throne, and the Lamb. Otherwise, our lives become disintegrated, scattered, little, you know, side paths and and alike. And we lose our lives in this disintegration. And John says, no, I'm going to call you back to the center, which is in Jesus Christ. And this John... He's on the island, the text says, called Patmos, a small, rugged island off the west coast of what is today, you know, uh, Turkey. Then Asia Minor, a Roman province, not terribly far off into the sea from the churches that John's going to write to. And this little island was used by the Romans for political prisoners. And the, the ancient, 4th the century uh, church historian Eusebius tells us that the emperor Domitian, in about 95 AD, exiled John to this island. And that later John was released from the island, from the prison, and he settled at Ephesus, one of the churches to which he writes. And John is on this island of exile, verse 9 tells us, Because or on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was exiled for his witness, for his apostolic ministry, for his proclamation of the gospel. And remember, we'll see this often. His witness, our witness, is a witness to the witness Jesus, the faithful witness, bore. Right, we witness to that witness. He is the witness. And we point, we point, we point. And John did this and he did it faithfully and it got him imprisoned. And then in verse 10 he says, while on Patmos he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In a sense this means he was lifted up into the power and the reality of the age to come. He's lifted up into God's heavenly throne room, into God's council. And this marks John out as a prophet. Notice the contrast here. As things are seen by an observer, John is a political prisoner, right? With no power whatsoever on a rocky island in the Aegean. But there in that desolation and in that exile, he is in the spirit on the Lord's day, lifted up into the throne council room of God and into the power of the age to come. This is part, a large part of what Revelation is trying to say to us as Christian people. You may be in some Patmos in your life. It may seem like the Christian church is exiled. Poor, weak, lowly, scattered. But you're lifted up every time you assemble in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is a term, very important term, which about this time in the church history came to be used of of the day that we celebrate here, the public Sunday worship of the church. The Lord's Day Is the day of resurrection. In the early church, they called this day here the eighth day of the week because it was the first day of the new week, right? Saturday was the last day. Sunday would be the first day of the new week or the eighth day. Jesus rose on the eighth day. He begins a new creation. And so, this day itself, the very day, is about tasting the coming end of the age, it points to the resurrection. This day itself says, the end is upon us. This is the day of resurrection. And it's the Lord's day, and this is extremely significant. The Roman emperors had special days, set apart for emperor worship. But the Lord's day asserts, Jesus is the emperor. See, these terms to us have been stripped of all their subversive political character. We hear these terms and we think, they just sort of float off. This is a potent term. Jesus is the emperor both now and in the age to come. And John sees the world from this perspective, even in the midst of exile on Patmos. Patmos is not the definitive thing about John's existence. And the earthly situation of the church or your life is not the definitive thing. It is not the final word. And so to gather here on this day is a political action. It's a political statement. One Lord's Day in the Lord's house is better than a thousand Fourth of July's. Fourth of July's are wonderful. I love the Fourth of July. But it's penultimate. These, this day confronts us with the ultimate things. And so John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he hears this loud voice behind him like a trumpet. This is a very noisy vision. Very noisy. It's raucous. And, and this trumpet evokes a whole chain of images. They were used to evoke the appearance of God to Israel on Mount Sinai. It was accompanied, you'll recall, by a loud trumpet blast. Not just a trumpet blast, but a loud one. And God incarnate, God raised and exalted in our flesh, is appearing in this scene. Trumpets were used to call Israel to battle, to worship, to the liberation of the land in the Jubilee year, to war. They're used in the New Testament to herald the coming of the Lord at the end of the age. And so this trumpet-like voice in verse 11 gives John the prophet the commission to write what he sees in a book or on a scroll and send it to the seven churches. The seven churches are then listed here. And they're listed in clockwise... Geographical order. Most likely the order that a messenger would deliver the book. And so one book, one book goes in serial fashion to all seven churches. It's a circular letter. Now we'll come back to this, Lord willing, but for now we should simply note that the empire, the Roman Empire, and its cult, when I say its cult, I mean its worship, its public worship. Um, were particularly strong in Asia Minor. This area was a foothold of emperor worship. Six of these seven cities had temples dedicated to the emperor. Five of them had imperial priests and various imperial altars. We'll come back to this when, when we look at the letters to these churches and throughout the book as well. We'll make reference to this. So the second point is the glorified Christ. If you look at this text, verses 12 through 16, the the middle portion of this text, they are a particularly dense example of what happens often in Revelation. There's a bewildering array of symbols here, like a kaleidoscope of imagery which is just sort of gathered up from large portions of the Old Testament. And to tease out the sources that John uses here would take two full sermons. But what's important in the vision is this, the overall impact and effect of the vision. There are texts in Revelation, I confess to you honestly, that I despair about preaching because there's, the temptation is to just get in the way. Like the force of the text is felt in reading it carefully and quietly and meditatively in such a way that you hardly need human commentary. The overall effect of these visions is very important. But since John uses a lot of sources, I'm going to mention a couple of them, but not many, believe me. We're just going to mention a few things. In verse 12, John turns... To see the voice that is speaking to him. This is an odd expression, isn't it? You don't normally see a voice. But this is what Revelation is about. It's it's attempting to get you to see. I, I mentioned this last week. Revelation is all about reawakening, restructuring, reordering your imaginative capabilities. Right? This is why John writes this way. Otherwise, he could just say, Jesus is in heaven and he's the highest of all beings, worship him. Instead, he paints this vivid uh, picture. This is a kind of seeing that hears and a kind of hearing that sees. Of course, this is true of, of any good reader of any text. Readers can't just hear, they have to see, they have to imagine, they have to be able to get into other worlds. Often a person that doesn't like to read or is not a good reader lacks not some technical reading skill. They lack imagination. So John turns to look at the voice and on turning he sees seven, seven golden lampstands. We're told later that these lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven churches we know are representatives of the whole church. We looked at that last week. And these lampstands represent churches because in Zechariah 4, there's a lampstand with seven lamps on it, burning, which represents the new temple or the old temple, the whole temple of God. We saw that last week in Zechariah 4. It was the Old Testament lesson. So the church is the new temple. And in Zechariah's vision, there's a lampstand And that vision is about restoring the temple. This is the place where Zechariah says famously, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And that spirit, the spirit of God, and we saw this last week as well, is like a sevenfold torch, right? The seven spirits who are before my throne, that's a sevenfold torch, That lights the lampstands and empowers the witness of the churches. This is a text about the risen and exalted Christ giving spiritual fire to the church. And so the text indicates in verse 13 that Jesus walks in the midst of these seven distinct lampstands. You know, it's interesting, in the Old Testament temple, there was one lampstand. Remember that in the holy place? One lampstand. We might say that the single Old Testament lampstand is Jesus Christ. And now He's risen, John is telling us. He's fully endowed with the Spirit and He lights all the lampstands of the individual churches. He is the lampstand who lights the lampstands. And in the midst of these seven lampstands, John says he sees one walking who's like a son of man. This is from Daniel chapter 7, which was the Old Testament lesson this morning. There the son of man receives from the ancient of days universal dominion. He brings to an end the domination of all the other kingdoms and empires which Daniel sees in his vision in that same chapter. So what John is saying here, put simply, is this. Jesus, the Son of Man, is triumphant over all opposition, including the reigning empire. So, it turns out that not only is the Lord's Day gathering on it a political act, it turns out that the ascension... And the enthronement of Jesus Christ is to be the most significant political fact in your imagination. John means that. The ascension and the enthronement of Jesus is the most important political fact in your imagination. And the fact that it isn't for us is a sign that we simply don't, we're not reading the New Testament the way the early Christians read it. And so this figure, like a son of man, is clothed in a long robe with a golden sash. And this means that in addition to being the exalted king, he's a priest. This is the kind of clothing that the high priest wore in Israel. And like the Old Testament priest, this means Jesus Christ tends to, tends the lampstands in the midst of the new temple. That means Jesus is tending to you and I right now in our midst as the great priest He is present with. He cares for the churches. He's not just king up there. He's priest and a priest mediates. A priest builds bridges. A priest heals. Jesus walks in the midst of us, in the midst of all the churches, as king and priest. In verse 14 it says, His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. You remember the, uh, the scenes of the transfiguration in the Gospels. Christ there also has white clothes. This is the same figure, the same glimpse of Christ in his glory, only here is his hair and his head are white. And so the text symbolizes Jesus' transcendent blazing Purity. Perhaps his wisdom as well. The white hair may mean that. But the, the overall thing is his transcendent purity. And even more basic to grasp here in what John is saying is this image used of the divine ancient of days in Daniel 7. In that Daniel 7 passage, very important passage, by the way, the whole book of Daniel is important to understanding Revelation, but Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are particularly important. But there, the Son of Man comes up to God, and God, the Ancient of Days, is the one who has hair like pure wool. But notice what happens here. John says the transfigured Christ now is the one who's blazing in white. And so what John is saying is the transfigured Christ is himself divine. He bears the divine glory, and this is a subversive fact. It is one thing to confess, to assent, to believe that Jesus is Lord. It is another thing to see. That he is Lord. To perceive his lordship. To be illumined. To be lit up in the inner being. With a vision something like this. When you confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's what John is trying to accomplish here under the Spirit's power. He continues in verse 14. He says his eyes were like a flame of blazing fire. Fire issued from the throne in that scene in Daniel 7. And here in that throne was the throne of God, the Ancient of Days. Here, the fire issues from the eyes of the Son of Man. Again, John is saying, Jesus is God. He's the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. And this fire speaks of His burning holiness, His blazing purity. Which penetrates not only into our secrets, but into the secrets of history as well. This is why he is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. These eyes burn impurity and sin out of his people. They will scour the earth of evil. Jesus does not look at us. He looks into us and into all things. With these eyes... And his feet, the text says, verse 15, are burnished, glowing bronze. And bronze was was harder than ordinary gold or silver. It was used in weapons. And so his feet are armor-like. They're militarized, weapons-grade. For under these feet, all of his enemies and all of your enemies... All of your enemies and all of the struggling Christians in Asia Minor's enemies are going to be subdued. Like his eyes, his feet are fiery. Notice the text says it was like bronze glowing in a furnace. What he sees with his eyes, he subdues with his feet. And so what is being unveiled here is the reality of the risen Christ transfigured as a fearsome warrior, priest, king. And the voice of this Jesus in the text is like the roar of many waters. You know, the voice of a person tells us a lot, doesn't it? You you approach a person, you you may know them, but you may not know what kind of mood they're in, or you may not know them. And you notice how they talk What their voice sounds like And it makes a big Conscious and sometimes subconscious impression on us Well this Jesus He's not whispering This is no still small voice This is no sweet and gentle Jesus calling in the night When he speaks It's like the roaring tumult of waves Awesome and majestic This is the same sound made by the living creatures, these angelic beings, which are dreadful beings in themselves, which carry the throne of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. So just again, as an aside, if, you, if you're not at all familiar with Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1, this vision is just going to be a collage to you. Cool vision, John. But this reference is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 1. To the the, the thunderous sound that the angelic hosts who carry the throne of God make. It's a sound which Ezekiel calls the sound of the Almighty. The sound of tumult. The sound of an army. This is the sound, the risen Jesus makes. Because He is the glory, the throne, the ark, the risen warrior, priest, king of God. And in verse 16, we're told in his right hand he held seven stars. And verse 20 tells us these stars correspond to the angels of the seven churches. Since the word for angel can simply mean messenger, some people think these angels or these stars are are the seven pastors of the churches. That's probably not the case. These are representatives and possibly guardians of the churches. And this is another area where the echoes of the Bible, we have to tune our ears to them. Angels and stars are often associated in Scripture. Not only are angels and stars associated, stars in their light-bearing function resemble the people of God. John is playing on this here, this connection. Angels, stars, people of God. Daniel says the glorified saints will shine like stars. Paul says the saints are to shine like lights in the world. And so these angel stars represent the church in its heavenly perspective. That's why John writes to the angel of the church at so-and-so. Angels and stars are often associated with rule and judgment in the Bible. So again, John is trying to get you to link a bunch of stuff together. Angels, stars, saints, rule. But John doesn't stop to tell us any of this. He just splashes the stuff all over the page. They're associated with rule because in Genesis 1, the sun and the moon were given to rule the day and the night. And this judgment comes to the fore in the next phrase, which says that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, I know this is a lot. I'm aware of that. But, frankly, it's less than a third of what John is actually alluding to. If you pick up a good commentary on Revelation, and and it says, well, where does the bronze feet come from? Where do the flashing eyes come from? John is pulling together strands of all sorts of things in the Old Testament and weaving them into his own portrait here. Now he adds this two-edged sword. From the mouth of the Messiah. Well, it turns out that this is from Isaiah chapter 11. This is the messianic sword, the breath of his mouth, which strikes the earth, Isaiah says, and slays the wicked. And this same sword's going to appear at the end of the book and destroy the kings of the earth and the enemies of God. What is John saying to the Christians on the ground in Asia Minor and to you and I? He's saying that this sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God, this word and not the word of the empire, nor the swords of Roman armies and soldiers, this word rules and governs history. These decrees, these pronouncements, these announcements from this word, this is the powerful word. And finally, his face is was like the sun shining in all its brilliance or in full strength. It's the same majestic purity, the same radiant splendor seen by the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the reason, later, that John will say the heavenly city needs no sun for the Lamb is its light. This burning, radiant splendor is the face of the risen Jesus. This is the face that ministers place on the congregation when they say, the Lord lift up His face or His countenance on you. You think that's just a kindly, grandfatherly countenance? It's this countenance. This is the face of Jesus. And so the overall effect if I haven't cluttered it up too much, is one of transcendent glory and judgment. It's it's one at which all earthly kings and priests and all earthly judges by pale in comparison. There's a kind of pure and holy dread and wonder evoked by this one. And so the text puts a question to us, does it not? This is the question. Is this your Jesus? I can tell you it's not most people's Jesus. Most of us go through our Christian lives without any sense of ever comprehending or apprehending or being accosted by a Jesus like this at all. This is, again, so if not, fine, refurbish the house of your heart accordingly. That's why the text is here. Because, you know, all other Christs, they're idols. They're figments of our overly sentimentalized imaginations. This is how we are to see the risen and transfigured Christ. Again, this is one of the primary functions of the whole book. And it really is one of our problems, right? In our darkness, in our despair, in our weakness, we don't see. We don't apprehend. You know, Jesus is no longer a Galilean shepherd. He's no longer picking children up and dropping them on his knee. He's no longer wandering the roads He's no longer an infant in a nativity scene. And of course, he drives us back to those scenes and we learn of him there. But this Jesus is the only Jesus you have to do with. You cannot say to yourself, you know, I don't, this Jesus makes me a little is unnerving. I prefer the baby Jesus or the dying Jesus on the cross, even. But the only Jesus available to you this minute or for the rest of your life or for the totality of your life is this Jesus. This is how he is now. This is who he is now. This is what he looks like and sounds like. So the third point is the commission then. So John has the right response to the vision. He falls down at his feet as if he was dead. There are so many unthreatening Jesuses out there. (laughs) And then when John sees him, now John's a holy apostle, is he not? He says, to get a glimpse of the transfigured glory of Christ would kill you. And he falls down dead because Jesus is a glorious and a terrifying figure. He is, in in C.S. Lewis's words, scary good. That's what this is. Scary goodness. He is for his people. No one should mishear me about that. I'm not trying to scare you off. I'm trying to scare you into his goodness. So what what does he do? John's dead. Or at least it looks like he might be dead. He takes that right hand, that hand which holds the churches, and he puts that hand on John. And John, who has died, is now, in a sense, metaphorically resurrected to fulfill his commission as prophet. The Lord lays his hand on him and he says, do not be afraid. You know, that's another command which gets heard in contexts where you don't really believe it. Because the person saying it doesn't have the authority to say it. Because there are real things to be afraid of. Diseases and warfare and death and thermonuclear weapons. And anyone who thinks you shouldn't be afraid is, is, is must be what? Some sort of Mary Poppins figure, right? There are dreadful, terrifying things in heaven and earth to be afraid of. But this vision and the fear of this God and the right hand of this God on you can say, Do not be afraid. And that's genuinely authentic, and that works. And so, the vision of this Christ is a vision of dreadful comfort, dreadful comfort for the people of God. And that's a sacred compound dread and comfort. They must both be present. If you have too much dread, then you're always cowering, and you think that God, you lose the fact that God is not your father. That Jesus is not your Savior. But if you have too much comfort, you don't have this Jesus at all eventually. It's all comfort. Martin Luther used to say, does the man know anything of death and the devil or is it all sweetness and light? Luther was very suspicious of people that were all sweetness and light because he thought, they're not taking the measure of reality. Nor are they taking the measure of this Christ. Christ. Do not be afraid. Jesus says that to you this morning. This Jesus. And the reason is given next. I am the first and the last. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the one we saw last week. He's the living one. He's alive. He was dead. He's alive forevermore. He has the keys of death and hell. He and not the state controls human destiny. He can give the church the victory promised in Matthew 16 when he said the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. And so he commissions John to write what he sees, the things that are now and the things that will take place later. The force of this is to simply write out the whole vision for the sake of the churches. So the book of Revelation, as we said last week or a couple weeks ago, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? That's how the book starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a revelation of this Jesus. And in addition to this stunning vision of the triune God, Revelation has this exalted, breathtaking conception of Christ. And so here again, we're at the heart of the book. We have to re-image and re-grasp and bow and worship this Jesus. For this vision is the ground of our assurance. Right? It's here to motivate us to love, to obey, to heed what John's about to write. And for that, we need to see. We need to see with new eyes. So let the one who has eyes see this Christ and hear what God says to the churches. Amen. Amen.